This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen McCaffrey. This is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Gotta Bust Them All edition. It's Wednesday, July 20th, 2016. On today's show, the new Ghostbusters reboot stars Melissa McCarthy, Kristen Wiig, Kate McKinnon, and Leslie Jones. You will notice these are all women. We discuss the film and the politics surrounding it. And then Pokemon Go has taken over more than just the world. What is it about this little app that has shot augmented reality, so-called AR, into the forefront of consciousness, human consciousness itself? And finally, we discuss a provocative profile of the great American portrait artist Chuck Close. Uh, that appeared in the Sunday New York Times magazine. Joining me today is Slate's uh, editor, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia. Hi, Steve. How are you? Uh, I'm very good, thanks. Uh, how are you doing? I'm 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 just like sitting atop a menagerie of uh, Pikachu, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lie. I never caught a Pikachu yet. Sorry. Never mind. What level are you right now? I don't know, like five? <laughs> Zero. You're level five? Or three something? I didn't know there were levels. <laughs> <laughs> I'm at the level of not knowing there are levels. <laughs> oh my God, that's so zen. And of course, uh, Dana Stevens uh, is the film critic for Slate um, and a Pokemon sensei in the movie. <laughs> hey. Hey. <laughs> hey, hey, Dana. Um, Julia, before we dig in, I'm sure we have some business. I have some business. Apparently, I misspoke last week didn't do my homework and didn't figure out that there was no way the serial podcast could have influenced the HBO show The Night Of, for which I was piranhaed online, um, um, perhaps deservedly so. But uh, nonetheless, I think that there's some kind of relationship there, um, a zeitgeisty relationship, even though there was no cause and effect. So fact check moment to kick us off. You I mean it could not wrong. have influenced because the, the pilot was already yes. shot? The yes. whole thing was, was created for James Gandolfini. Yeah, but I thought Steve's point was that it may be in the reworking in the years in between. Even then, I, I, that, I crossed my fingers and went on Wikipedia as I was getting flayed alive on our Facebook page. But Julia, what other, um, what other business do we have? Okay, well, first of all, we want to remind our listeners that we have a live show at the Mount, uh, Edith Wharton's beautiful home in Lenox, Massachusetts, on Thursday, August 4th. There are still a few tickets available. Uh, so if you're looking for a lovely long weekend to plan in August, consider the Berkshires. They are delightful, and we will be too, I promise. Um, also, Steve went off the res, off the cuff, went rogue Sarah Palin style and committed us all to going on a hike with any of you who want to hike with us. What a fun idea. He also committed us to doing it before the show when Dana and I will still be in a car on the way up to New York City. 
<laughs> so we will do a hike with anyone who wants to do a hike with us who attends the show. But that hike will now be on Friday morning. So we will come up with a few more details about it. It'll be hard, easy, medium. What are you What are you doing? Is this going to be like Jillian Michaels' like boot camp situation, Steve, or is it going to be like a lope on a country lane? There's a little spelunking uh, involved. <laughs> Some rappelling. It's, um, it's somewhere in between, Julia. It's about a 45 minute hike up. By the end of it, my heart, uh, even when I've been in relatively decent shape, has been racing somewhat. There's, it's all on trail though. There's nothing. There's no scrambling uh, or you know any such activities. But you know, it's definitely, it's definitely an exertion to do it. You should be absolutely sure you're in the proper shape to do it to come on the hike. Uh, and then there's a wonderful surprise at the top of the hike. I r- promise you, it's really an extraordinary thing. Um, Is it a Pokemon? It's. it's <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, and then, you know, one lingers up there in order to enjoy the surprise and then walks down the whole thing. You should budget probably, I don't know, two and a half hours minimum. We could certainly do it in that. So I'm thinking on Friday morning, and um, uh, but the condition is we have to sell out the show. So, you know, you got to come to the show and then come to the hike. And it may feature special guest stars as well from Steve Steve's life in <laughs> rural America. Also, if we sell out the show and we go on this hike together, uh, you will get to see me turn bright pink like the flesh of a seared lobster. So get psyched for that, <laughs> which is the color I turn when I hike. I don't think even Steve and Dana know that yet. So um, if you'd like a pale pink Julia, get psyched. Uh, okay, so that's things one and one A. And then thing two is that uh, we have a Slate Plus segment today for our Slate Plus members who support Slate and all the journalism we do and get to listen to bonus segments of our show every week. This week, we've enlisted experts to help us explain what is going on between Kim Kardashian, Taylor Swift, Kanye West, and the celebrity industrial complex. We'll have Forrest Wickman from Slate's Browbeat blog and Jessica Winter, our features editor and the author of the great new book, Break in Case of Emergency. Uh, telling us how we should feel about these battling celebrity titans. Point three, uh, a few of you have uh, sadly wondered on Twitter what is happening with Summer Strut. We will do our Summer Strut segment one of the next two weeks, so stay tuned. Your summer will still be sufficiently strutty. All right, moving on. Ghostbusters, of course, is the transformative 1984 comedy starring Bill Murray, uh, Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis. It was written by Aykroyd and Ramis. It's considered one of the great comedies of the 1980s, perhaps in the Hollywood canon. It's now been remade with a new team that stars Melissa McCarthy, Kristen Wiig, Kate McKinnon, and Leslie Jones. Wiig is Erin Gilbert, a professor in the process of botching her tenure review at Columbia, in part because she once co-wrote a book with her old childhood friend, Abby, played by Melissa McCarthy, called Ghosts from Our Past, figuratively and literally. The two round out the team with um, Kate McKinnon and Leslie Jones, and uh, Chris Hemsworth in a hilarious turn as their himbo secretary. Let's listen to a clip. And before we listen, we should say, so this is where the Kate McKinnon character, Holtzman, is demonstrating a few of the ghost-busting gadgets she's devised for the rest of the team. So you sort of hear some uh, kind of like uh, ghost-speak-on noises from the glowing technology. This puppy I like to call a ghost chipper. You truly scare me. I just want to let you know that. I'm going to just... It's like Mardi Gras in there. It's a proton glove. It's going to maximize flexibility during hand to specter combat. Just give it a punch, it's motion activated. (laughs) 
All right. Well, Dana, let me turn to you first. Uh, The original Ghostbusters, whatever one thinks of it, is certainly an iconic film. I I think it's important to remember certainly one thing about it, which is that it, it, it launched Bill Murray from a slob comedy star and a, you know, reasonably well-liked alumnus of Saturday Night Live into the realm of superstardom. And we get now the Bill Murray we, we know, one of the, you know, really towering stars of American comedy, principally because of Ghostbusters. It was a huge movie. I would be surprised if it were not the highest grossing comedy from the 1980s and one of the highest grossing, you know, in inflation-adjusted terms ever. Uh, uh, so whether one likes it or not, it is a large task to try to step uh, back into those shoes. Um, what did you What did you make of this uh, reboot? Yeah, this really is, I guess, a remake or a reboot. I mean, this is not a continuation of the, the prior Ghostbusters world. It seems like mentioning these people live in a world where Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd and Ernie Hudson and that gang never existed, right? And they're not really referred to except in so far as they appear in cameos as, as different characters. At least those of them that are still around all do. But I find like it's almost hard to talk or think about this new Ghostbusters reboot now as a movie in itself because since long before its release, since the trailer was first shown, it's been surrounded in this cloud of ridiculous sexist controversy that when you actually see the movie seems so overblown for what the movie itself is. I mean, this movie is, I don't know, a lighthearted summer romp. It's somewhat underplotted, as most comedies tend to be, and it sometimes has some some dead spots and static moments. But basically, as was the first Ghostbusters movie, and are as are many of Apatow's films and really most successful American comedies these days, it's, it's sort of a series of skits strung together, and it's really a movie about the chemistry among the stars and about hanging out, right? It's almost exclusively, in some ways, a, a, a fantasy about what it would be to hang out with cool friends and have cool ghost guns and, you know, get to go go blast at some 19th century murderesses manifesting in ectoplasmic form. And uh, I have to say, as a Paul Feig collaboration with Melissa McCarthy and Kristen Wiig, this is not on the level of Bridesmaids in terms of the tautness of its comedy. It's not on the level of Spy, the, the Paul Feig, Melissa McCarthy Bond parody that we loved last year. It's not as dense with jokes and as kind of carefully plotted as those movies, but I, I found it completely enjoyable and laughed my ass off and mm-hmm. came out of it feeling very affectionate toward it. But is it the case that that affection is somewhat colored by my, my desire to protect this movie from the the gross boy trolls who have been yes. tearing it apart on Twitter yes. for nine months? This is a Probably. bad movie. <laughs> Probably so. Movie. I think so. <laughs> All right. So you, you take over, Julia. You tell me why I'm, I've become an ideological zealot. Well, I don't really think you're an ideological zealot, but... I just don't think this is a very good movie. And I think this movie is sort of set up for failure in all of these tough ways. This is a fine movie. It has some good jokes. Those actresses, I would watch them do anything just to hang out in their company. It's a perfectly pleasant two hours. It's not boring. The clips along. They do a nice job giving everybody little, you know, uh, action movie backstories that add resonance and meaning. It's, It's very competently executed. But there are a couple factors that I think set this up to be disappointing. One is the nature of the comedy, right? I mean, when the first trailer went around, people were like, ooh, these jokes do not look funny. We know most of these women from Saturday Night Live, right? Three of them are Saturday Night Live stars. Then McCarthy, we know from these like antic, joke-packed, just truly hilarious movies like Bridesmaids. And I think we all liked Spy maybe more than the more than Rotten Tomatoes did. But The original Ghostbusters was not a -a laugh-a-minute comedy. In fact, I think you could argue what was revolutionary about it was that it was like a family action movie 
that happened to be funny because it cast these like alternative counterculture comedians in the role of the the you know superhero and they had this kind of very deadpan wry unassuming like who's that person holding that huge gun comedy to them uh but the jokes were like kind of laced through the whole thing had this wonderful tone uh but it was not it was not a laugh a minute right it wasn't sketch comedy the point wasn't to just be like laughing your ass off every single moment of that movie it had was this really interesting genre hybrid which i think resulted in its success so in this movie where, first of all, the tone of Ghostbusters has become the tone of all action movies. Like, every action movie is an action movie with, you know, unassuming heroes and deadpan jokes. I mean, I guess there's some that star Chris Hemsworth. Or was that Liam? Fuck that Hemsworth. It's Chris, right? <laughs> it's Chris. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that A, that tone is just prevalent now, so it doesn't feel as revolutionary to do it. B, the type of comedy that we know these women from is this, like, laugh-a-minute hilarious antics. So we've all seen them be much more funny everywhere else. So even though the comic moments here and the performances here are lovely, they just feel inevitably disappointing because the, the the response is not, oh my gosh, that hilarious guy from Caddyshack is like suddenly fighting a ghost and like making wry comments about it. Hilarious. It's like, when are they going to do something funnier than what they're doing right now? And I also think they made a little bit of a mistake in in how they handled the gender aspect like in some ways it's subtext here there's a couple little nods where they you know they have this imbo secretary they look at commenters on the internet about their ghost busting business and you know they say oh ain't no bitches gonna bust no ghosts or whatever the comment is and you see that there's this like nod at the pushback to this film but part of what made the original movie work was the idea that this was a very unlikely group of people to save the city and they kind of don't make that I almost think they could have made it more explicit. Made what more explicit? That, that that these were misfits and unusual characters to be involved in ghost busting? Yeah, like who are these women? I don't know. Like make mm-hmm. put put their yeah. womanhood almost more front and center as opposed to yeah. the the deadpanery of it. I mean, you know, I I completely understand the approach they took. It it must have been a very hard movie to write and make and they and it's fine, but it's not great. Okay, but I actually appreciate. It. I have to say, I have to say, as as the person who is who is just shot down as a feminist defender of a bad movie, that I think this would have been a worse movie had the supposed feminism been foregrounded. I mean, if we had to be sort of hearing lectures on gender equality on top of the fun ghost busting, I think what made it feel loose and and just free to me was that was that these this was just about four women doing their weird jobs and, and getting off on it. Right. Um, well, I, I agree with Julia, but, but let me say first, I really liked the movie. I laughed a lot. Uh, there were aspects of it that I thought were really hilariously funny. I went with my 13-year-old daughter who adored it and for whom it was enormously important, not only that there were four women at the center of the movie rescuing the world and being funny and chitting around with each other, Marx Brothers style, but also she really read the Kate McKinnon character as a lesbian, and she's not explicitly in the movie, but I you're not discouraged in believing that. Uh, let me put it that way. And I think she thought 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 of that as as a as a breakthrough for big Hollywood comedies. I think the original Ghostbusters was a turning point in the following way. You know, those Harold Ramis and Aykroyd and Murray were all people who grew up in an stultifying adult culture of the 1950s, within which they were juvenile comedy nerds, which meant that they were a minority of a minority. Um, you know, they saw none of their sensibility reflected in the dominant zeitgeist whatsoever, and they were um, undermining to its pretenses at the cost of their possible existence. I mean, there was no 
there was no industrial comedy complex awaiting to hire them the second that they graduated from college. Um, and I think that that's reflected in the sensibility of the original Ghostbusters, which is very much about the relationship between the adult world uh, as embodied by big science at Columbia University, and especially by Sigourney Weaver, who is the adult in the movie, who treats them with total incredulity um, and disdain. And that propels the relationship between Murray and Weaver. When the ghosts turn out to be real, Weaver suddenly understands that these juvenile nerds are actually un- onto something. They have a foothold in the real world. And that's the, that is the action of that entire movie. It's leveraging all of that until it overwhelms the entire world. The whole world needs to be rescued by it. And that was a big turning point in comedy. It, it turned comedy from, it helped turn the comedy from this little fringe, nerdy, critical, satirical, juvenile sensibility into something that could potentially, it was a vision of it taking over the whole world, as symbolized by Murray's ability to seduce Sigourney Weaver, the symbolic adult. And I think it's just very hard to, setting aside the gender issue, it is very hard to remake Ghostbusters in the same spirit because comedy has taken over the world. It is now a huge, huge business. It, satire is almost the dominant sensibility of the culture. And it just can't have that same energy. It just won't, it can't come from the same place. As to the gender dynamics, I thought all of that worked beautifully and that the trolls who were against this movie because the genders were switched just missed the point completely. It was kind of great that the movie was unrelenting in its gender politics to the point where um, Chris Hemsworth is just a complete and utter buffoon, airhead buffoon. And I just laughed at everything he said and everything he did. And their relationship to him, I thought was was hilarious. So I, I, I thought the movie was a success within its own constraints, but I think that those constraints had nothing to do with gender, were much, much, much larger. And it made it a good movie, but not a great movie. I think that's such an interesting point about where comedy is in the culture at the moment of the movie arriving. And I I, I guess that's also part of what made me feel sad about the film, which is even a group of people this brilliant remaking a movie that had such a specific powerful valence at the time that it was released it's like I just wish all these people had made their own movie like the cameos so the movie is studded with cameos from the surviving original actors in the film and I don't think that will be a shock to anyone who's familiar with the Hollywood apparatus and how it works and I won't say what they are, but all of the cameo service was just wasted time where you didn't get an additional scene of them having rapport with each other or doing something fun or developing some of the characters a little bit more. You know, one thing I think that really drags this movie down is the cameos. I don't think it'll be a surprise to anyone to learn that there's cameos from all of the original surviving actors. They're inoffensive, but it just feels like wasted screen time. Like you have all these amazing talents. You have this world, like let these people interact and be funny with each other. And, uh, you know, all of this kind of solemn, respectful nodding to the altar of the original just kind of bogs the movie down, I think. I can agree about all these points about the movie's structure, but but when it comes right down to it, I laughed. And I, Steve, it sounds like you and your daughter did too. Yeah, we did. Which for a summer comedy is not, uh, there's been some summer comedies that I've sat through poker faced and I thought that this might be one of them because of the unpromising trailer and not great advanced buzz. So I was pleasantly surprised, but you know, I don't think it's going to change anyone's life. All right. The movie is Ghostbusters. It is directed and co-written by Paul Feig. Uh, Go check it out. Tell us what you think about this controversy or series of controversies. We're at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, moving on. 
People have been wandering like zombies into national monuments and holy sites, up to prison doors, and even in, well, maybe not into the no-go zone between North and South Korea, but there apparently was a Pokemon figure there or near there. Um, They're following, of course, exotic and cute Pokemon animals. Pokemon Go is a smartphone game. It is an augmented reality or AR game using your smartphone um, in such a way that you use the video feed that gives you the real world and texts and images superimposed on top of that. Dana, I know that this is right up your alley. So why don't we start with you? Um, has it ta- Before you played it, did you notice that it had taken over your world completely? <laughs> this is a game that you don't need to have played to have it take over your world. I feel like I have basically not heard a conversation or read anything that doesn't reference those four syllables, Pokemon Go, in the last few days. So, yeah, you can have a very intense experience of it without playing it at mm-hmm. all. Right. Well, and also, as, as, as has been pointed out, most video games send, you know, young, grotty boys up deep into their parents' basement um, uh, to play. This seems, first of all, to addict anyone who plays it. And second, sends them out into the world and to common places out in the world. So it has this sort of inexorable world-conquering quality to it. Um, to begin with, okay, you played it, Dana. What 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 level are you at? What, well, we already determined you're at level zero, but what what was your experience of playing it? I guess I played it. I mean, I I downloaded the app, I opened it, I created an avatar for myself, and then I guess I watched her walk around a sort of GPS graphic reproduction of whatever my environment was. But you guys, oh, you're going to have to take me anywhere beyond that about what this game does because there was all this stuff about join team that I was thinking are we a team am I supposed to be playing Steve and Julia I keep hearing how about this is this social game and people are everywhere snickering together with their phones as they play it my experience of it was basically sort of lonely walking down city streets trying to figure out what the different symbols meant and figuring out if I was catching anything with the ball that you're supposed to I was sort of like when we played Snapchat or <laughs> chat is not a game but when we tried to use the Snapchat app you know I essentially felt like okay pastel colors of blobs are hurling themselves at me and I'm supposed to be doing something with them. The minute we talked about doing this as a, as a as a topic in the first place, I think someone on Twitter suggested it. And I said, cut to me not understanding the basic rules of the game while everyone laughs. And that's basically where we are. <laughs> I, I love the Pokemon basically turned you into Baudelaire on acid. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think another problem with this for me is that the graphics of this game are really unappealing. I mean, I've always thought, including when it was just a card game that kids played, you know, it's a kid's card game that's been around forever, that's mainly about collecting the cards, I think. But there's also some sort of fighting the the dragons against each other or whatever. And I've always found those animals aggressively uncute and just, just hideous, graphically hideous. So it doesn't particularly help that the thing you're supposed to be running around your city hunting for is, to me, just this really depressing corporate, they look like Olympic mascots or something. Oh, so if the um, aesthetics of the collectible Pokemon were different, it might have motivated you to learn the interface better. Like if it was all like beautiful, um, like different archival first edition library books <laughs> that you were connecting. It could have or even, even just kind of claymation hedgehogs or something that seems actually fun to, to collect. But I want you guys to talk me through like once the addictiveness, because as you know, as we've had this whole conversation about my, you know, lacking the game gene or whatever, where I can get into any game, including, you know, the world's greatest games. I mean, this could be chess, you know, this could be like whatever venerable game. And I would probably still have the same question, but I specific like the, to this game, why is it fun? It is when, true. Once the 
addictiveness. Dana does have like aphasia for games. Like like you're like colorblind <laughs> for games or something. Yeah, I mean just the level that I had to work myself up to even get this and try to play it and walk around city streets. I mean, I felt really, really stupid walking on the, down the streets and not enjoying it. It's one thing if you're going to become a laughing stock of, of the world because you're, you know, wandering onto world heritage sites looking for crass Pokemons. It's something else if you're doing that and you're not even enjoying the, the vague ball <laughs> rolling true. at weird pink blobs. It's true. Well, Julia, listen, this thing, just to put it in perspective, I should have said it within days of it being released. I mean, this thing has not been out scarcely two weeks, I think, but within days of it being released, the app was bigger, was doing more traffic than Tinder. It's gotten absolutely huge. Do you understand, uh, having played it, do you understand why? Totally. This game is uh, has very appealing and novel and surprising gameplay mechanics that feel like a leap forward in what gaming could be uh, and that make you think about your surroundings in a fun way. I would not have tried this game if not for the show, but when I tried it, it, you know, it's like very larded, especially if you're playing in a busy metropolis like New York with like pleasure points and exciting zings of reward at every corner. I mean, even on my block without crossing the street, there's like a glowing pokey stop or poke stop or whatever, <laughs> whatever you say f- with fluffy confetti that I can sort of see from my apartment. And it just makes me want to run out and go around the corner to the plaster of Paris like cheap Chinatown lions where if you stop by the lions and you like flip the dial, you can get a lot of poke balls to throw at your, <laughs> is it pokeball? I think I'm supposed to pronouncing everything wrong, to throw at the weird creatures that you're attempting to collect. And then the creatures are like, once you interact with a few of those, the app clearly decides like, oh, we got a live one. And then there's just creatures everywhere. It's like very easy, basically. <laughs> that know. makes me feel even more hopeful. Sorry. <laughs> but it's, but it, you know, that suddenly the creatures are everywhere. And then the the mechanic that you use to actually catch the little virtual creature once you spot one on the virtual map is that when you get close enough to one and seem to notice it, it shifts from being the virtual map to basically being the camera apparatus of your phone. So you're looking at, you know, the real world. It looks like you're about to take a photograph of the sidewalk patch in front of you, except there is a little virtual doohickey, a, you know, fake snake or a flapping Zubat bat or a whatever the hell the the mythology and lore of the 150 different original Pokemon types has yet to become a charm of the game to me. But anyway, there's some, some weird creature and you throw these this ammunition at them, the mechanics of which it took me a minute to, to figure out, you have to kind of like flick it for up the screen as opposed to tapping it or poking it, which took me a minute. Do not poke the Pokemon. That is not how you get the Pokemon. Um, <laughs> but once you figure that mechanic out, you know, apart from the flying ones, they're not, you know, then you catch them and then it like tells you a little bit about, oh, what kind of Pokemon is this? Which again, all read like uh, Aramaic to me, but I could see in a different frame of mind <laughs> getting more interested in those component pieces and they they have these nice charts where you see the empty silhouette of the pokemon that you haven't caught yet and then as you catch them it like plops them in to uh to their lair steve i lied i'm only a level three player not level five i figured out Oh, level three but so basically after you catch them they just become you put them into your own little private pokemon menagerie and just gawk at them they don't become co-players of the game or something well then there's a thing where you can take your pokemon to poke gyms and have them battle against other pokemon Mm -hmm. for points and victory which i tried to do that once and it told me i didn't have enough juju to do it and then i it told me i should try again later so i have not actually participated in training my pokemon at a poke gym 
Um, I, I didn't think, understand what that meant either. The gyms. <laughs> what are the gyms? There's a whole bunch of them in the gyms, and those can be anywhere too. <laughs> I think other people bring their Pokemon to the gyms and then they fight each other. Uh, something like that. I'm not at that level yet either. But um, a, a couple things. One is that, um, you know, just to, you know, sort of testify to the universality of the appeal of this. Okay, so my daughter got into this immediately, getting my younger daughter into it. In turn, they're totally obsessed. They've been playing it all the time, completely into it. All their friends are. They're having a lot of fun. Seems great. Seems harmless. I have a neighbor up here, a weekender up from Manhattan, who's a muckety in the fashion world, who's the most beautifully turned out, elegant human being I think I've ever met in my life, who seems utterly immune to something this silly. She texted us early on a Saturday morning and said, uh, get Stella, my daughter, get her over here right away. She's got to show me how to get to level three. And um, it, she was just playing it all day. I mean, people, it seems to take over the unlikeliest people. The second effect of it um, is friends of mine live in a house um, in a historic village, and their house is a historic landmark because Benedict Arnold spent one night there, you know, or something, or at one point, and so it has a plaque from whatever the natural national historic register or whatever it, but um so it got geolocated as part of the game and this has completely freaking destroyed their lives i mean people are essentially st- stopping their cars pulling into their driveway sitting on their stoop uh attempting to grab these uh pokemon figures so it's it's um it's just physically everywhere in addition to infecting everyone. What I find really interesting about it is I felt, especially after we did Oculus Rift, Oculus Rift, the VR system that Facebook purchased, really made me think this is where everything is going. It's going into a person sitting alone passively in an enclosed artificial world that mimics the real world and the 3D effect of the real world playing a sensorially overloading game of one kind or another, or even going to foreign you know, exotic faraway places within the VR world. I just thought everything would go inside the VR world. And it just shows you, you can't predict anything. I mean, I think AR may come along and be at least as big. And it's not a small thing that it gets people out. Like, obviously, you know, there are already urban legends about, um, you know, finding corpses. And certainly, you know, unfortunately, someone's probably going to get, you know, hit by a truck or, you know, bad things may happen. People wandering around doing this, but, 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 setting those aside for a moment. I just think it's intrinsically healthy that that the game... We live in an age of massively degraded and evacuated public spaces relative to most of human history. And if it takes some preposterous app to get people out and walking around and interacting with their environment, at this point, and these words may be thrown back in my face, I only see the positive knock-on effects of it. I think it's really cool. <laughs> I mean, in addition to being addictive and fun, that's the thing that feels game changing and exciting about it to me is is the notion that it kind of gets you up and out of your house and interacting with the real world. The question, though, I think then is how much are you interacting with the real world when you're just poking your head into your phone that has a virtual version of the world that you're in that tracks mm-hmm. with it only slightly? I yeah. walked up to the movie theater where I saw Ghostbusters last night with my husband and was kind of demonstrating Pokemon, which I'd been playing over the weekend while he was traveling to him. Uh, And we kind of stopped at some weird mural where there was a Pokestop and I kind of nudged him and there was another woman staring at her phone right in front of us who had sort of the same little virtual screen. Uh, And we kind of all noticed each other and laughed at each other and all scooped up our Pokeballs and went on our way. And I haven't actually seen the like hordes of kids in Central Park or all the kind of reports of it just besetting the entire 
you know, visible universe. But that moment with that woman felt like, oh, we're sharing a little secret. Like we all know there's some special thing about this mural. On the other hand, didn't look at the mural for a minute, did not read the text in the mm-hmm. app about what the mural was about. Right. Um, and also, you really find yourself paying attention to the virtual version of the space. So I'm mm-hmm. in a New York full of apparitions walking up Lafayette Street on the way to a movie about a New York full of apparitions. It was sort mm-hmm. of a, like surreal yeah. experience. So the, the question of how you, even if it's getting you out the door, if it's getting mm-hmm. you out the door but glued to your phone, that feels strange. And to me, yes. it, it felt a bit like a bridge technology. I mean, we all, I don't know if we specifically, but people made fun of Google Glass when it came out, these like glasses that were going to project kind of intel about the world around you onto your lenses as you went through the universe. Those things look dopey mm-hmm. and are widely considered a dud. But with a technology like this, you begin to see, oh, someday yeah. there will be a yep. thing it's like a you know little earpiece and it projects it and only you can see it. And when you look at the coffee shop, it'll show you the Yelp review. And when you want to understand the history of the historic site, it reads you the plaque and tells you, reads you the Wikipedia page. And when you want to catch a Pikachu, it tells you where the Pikachu are. Yeah. All right. Anyway, the game is Pokemon Go. Um, do you find it utopian, dystopian, neither one, just fun or addictive? or a complete intrusion, annoying intrusion on your uh, normal 3D life. And can I throw in one more question for the Facebook responders? Did did anyone else experience it as I did, where you honestly did not know if you were playing the game? It was so unfun and pointless that you (laughs) just literally didn't even, there wasn't even the click in where you saw that there was a point to any of it at all. You are not on the hump of the bell curve on this one. Because I want to meet that one listener and I want to go make them my friend. You guys, should we? Maybe we should uh, commit to continuing and actually try and join a team with each other and play for oh, another sure. couple of weeks, and then and and we can revisit in an Esprit d'Escalier segment. Brilliant. Um, T- Tana okay. just like rolled her eyes with some horror <laughs> and sadness. Right, Steve, you and I can join a team. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we'll go on a pokey hike together. Um, okay, so facebook.com slash culturefest. Let us know what you think about this phenomenon. For nearly 50 years, Chuck Close has been at the forefront of American art. I believe he is best known, if I'm not mistaken, for two things above all. First, monumental portraits that use his own special technique. Let me describe it a little bit. He takes a photo of his subject, as I understand it, then he overlays a grid on the photo. He then copies the photo onto a canvas, cell by cell, using paint. Um, The resulting painting is huge and photorealistic. His art is very distinctive. And secondly, in 1988, Chuck Close suffered a spinal artery collapse, which has left him in a wheelchair ever since. Uh, If you had asked me about Chuck Close a few days ago, I would have said he's an American master entering his late phase, widely recognized as one of the truly great living American artists. Then along comes a profile of him in the Times Magazine by Will S. Hilton, uh, let me say right off the top of the bat, I think it's a beautifully written piece of journalism, but it's certainly a curious one. Let me quote from it a little bit. Hilton writes, what you need to understand as we get into this further is that nobody saw it coming. I don't just mean his recent focus on death or his urge toward self-portraiture, nor do I mean his bewildering decision to remove himself to Long Beach and Miami, or even the trail of late nights and young women he has begun to leave behind. What I mean is the combination of all these things into a period of metamorphic transition here at the end of a legendary life. Julia, let me turn to you first. Um, I, I, I mean, it's very hard to convey the holistic impression of the profile just 
by quoting from it, nor is it easy to convey the impression it leaves of close. But let me try a little bit and then hear what you have to say. I mean, my feeling is that this person either knew close already or got to know him really well over the course of the last several years. Um, and then wanted to convey that close is entering a kind of manic phase in his own life and his personality is changing in some ways, in some alarming ways without violating his new friends or old friends privacy overly much and uh, found himself sort of stuck wanting to tell us a lot, but forced by a kind of reticence and even maybe kindness and sensitivity into saying quite less than that. And it's a very peculiar thing to read both as a piece of journalism itself and for the impression it leaves of Chuck Close. What am, what am I missing? Well, I should say first that I think this is a beautiful read and a beautifully executed profile. There are a lot of ethical challenges in producing this story. One is can a, someone who's become close and seemingly an intimate and confidant then also become the person who writes the profile of a subject uh, two is what kind of respect or deference do you give to the sources within the piece? So there are, you know, several people in the story, uh, Chuck Close's daughters, I think, who gave long, tearful interviews to the author, later regretted having been so candid, asked that he not include their testimony, and he decided to accede to their requests, which, you know, journalistic practices, once you've said it and you haven't said it's off the record – that's the journalist's decision to make, not the sources. And so he's very deferential to the family in ways that seem both humane and also somewhat distinct from what a different journalist or a journalist who didn't have such a personal relationship with Chuck Close might have decided, although a totally unaffiliated journalist also might have decided to defer to those wishes. Not all journalists are inhumane. Um, and then the piece uh, executes kind of a neat rhetorical trick at the end where it suggests that any holes or missing details in the story or things that have chosen to be left out are akin to the style of portraiture that Chuck Close has edged towards where his you know exact photorealism of his work in the 70s uh, has turned into more this kind of impressionistic, almost pixelated. The the character comes through with both what's there and what's left out. Uh, it's a very tidy metaphor. It seemed slightly convenient and too clever by half at the end. Mm -hmm. uh, but mostly, I came away impressed. Um, Dana, I, I just want to get some of the details in so people who haven't read it, and people should read it, will get some sense of what this dance was what the veils were sort of uh, billowing about, you know, it does seem as though his health has taken a turn for a wor worse and it's reflected in his mental health. There was a diagnosis of Alzheimer's that has been retracted, but it does seem as though there's a relationship between a physical deterioration and a mental and possibly emotional one as well, as manifested in this kind of portrayed as someone who's acting out in somewhat nonsensical ways. I mean, showing up to parties, wearing scarves and with lipstick smeared on his face. Uh, he's moved to Long Beach, a not chic part of the world, to get away from the art world as far as possible. Uh, he, the journalist relays conversations in which Close quite clearly loses the thread of the conversation and his mind wanders someplace you know, borderline nonsensical, even though at other times he's entirely acute about his situation and the situation of the art world. And there are issues of marital fidelity and his relationships with his kids. There's a lot going on in Chuck Close's life that, that we're meant to glimpse, we're meant to sense is there, but um, we're also very much meant to think there's an enormity that we're not, not allowed to glimpse straight on. Um, and it's a very odd sensation to read this. 
Yeah, I guess, I mean, this is going to be a, a, a point where I differ strongly from the two of you. I really did not like this profile. And I think it had to do maybe the very things that make it this unusual profile of an artist got to me. But 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 these the Dance of the Seven Veils is a really good image for it. Um, but I feel like once you got beneath all the veils, there was kind of nothing there. I just, I, I felt that this writer, Will S. Hilton, zigzagged between two different modes. This kind of chummy, name-dropping, I mean, there's some pretty shameless name-dropping in this piece, sort of coterie with the artist, right? And 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 uh, profiting from and almost in a way kind of humble bragging about his closeness to this famous important artist, which in a way made him seem allied with these increasingly young women that he's replaced his wife with and that kind of hover around Chuck Close. That whole phenomenon seemed um, distasteful to me. And I felt like the writer's relationship to that coterie was also somewhat distasteful. But But then the other mode that he would swing into all of a sudden would be this very abstract I don't know what you'd call it, just sort of philo- philosophical Zoomed art out. speak. What yeah. is art? Yeah. And what there is were a moments. Late artist? What is it? Yeah. What does it mean to, to have late work? He has some interesting quotes from Edward Said about the late period of artists, and certainly the idea of covering an artist, you know, at this moment that he's sort of either achieving new heights in his art or falling apart, which Chuck Close sort of seems to be doing both at the same time. Is it's a really interesting moment to approach your subject. But I just felt that this piece swung in between sort of smug and ethically questionable, you know, (laughs) aggrandizement of his friendship with this famous artist with this very airy, you know, I mean, essentially, I remember reading some paragraphs of of this out loud to my partner and saying, couldn't you say that about almost any work of art from the mid 20th century on? I mean, he was sort of having Mm -hmm. these revelations about abstraction. And Julia, as you say, this a little bit too easy idea that the left out frames, you know, the sort of left out information in a Chuck Close painting, which looks like a big pixelated face, basically, is is, you know, the kind of symbolic equivalent of how we must all, as we read a profile, fin- fill in our own stories. I don't know. That that stuff felt a, like a little bit undergraduate philosophy mm. dorm room stonage yeah. to me. And, and and I found it too long and I just couldn't get through it. And I just felt like this is not making me care more about Chuck Close. And it's one of those profiles, as many, many celebrity profiles do, that reveal more about the writer than they do about the mm-hmm. person there is their subject. Yeah. Um, I, you know, it reminded me of the, one of the, my favorite pieces of journalism ever, which is Janet Malcolm's portrait of David Sally in The New Yorker, in which she employs a um, collage method in trying to get the reader to understand who David Sally is and what his art is like. And it is, it, it's the kind of thing that an undergrad might come up with, but only a genius can pull off and only a genius should try. And Malcolm happens to be one. And she does. It's one of the most a truly remarkable piece of journalism I've ever read. By the end of it, you do feel as though you've brought been brought to a new understanding of what contemporary art is and what Sally's place within that that universe is. Took her years to write. It sounds like this one took um, Hilton years to write. Um, does he quite pull it off like Malcolm does? Not really. But what I found interesting about the possible bad faith of the journalist's relationship to Close is really more his relationship with the art world and the contemporary art world. However, I, I feel as though a profile like this participates in the cult of the artist as it's grown up in this ecosystem of money in ways that I'm not entirely comfortable with. There's actually no genuine humility worked in, or I feel I take away no genuine humility from setting aside what ch- what Close's motivations are to getting away from the art world, but there's still this need to sanctify the artist as someone who needs to be a part, but then immediately 
uh, rewrite that into a narrative of greatness and um, an expensive, you know, um, commodity goods or fetish goods, really, in a way that I just, I don't know. It it seemed to participate in the very energies it wanted to um, be skeptical about. The profile did, you think? Yeah, the profile. Close, I don't think so. I think Close probably just does want to get the fuck away from it. I don't think he's trying to mythologize himself by 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 doing it and isolating himself. Um, well, I, I take I take that as a sincere gesture on his part. It's just it finds itself hyped within the body of the piece in a way that undoes its premise. It's interesting, Steve, because I didn't read as much like anti-Manhattan art world into the piece as like the mysterious late in life, like illness and sort of mental break almost of a man who kind of lived comfortably with a family for 30 odd years, mostly in Manhattan and Bridgehampton, and then suddenly abandoned both places and that family for Long Beach and Miami and a whole different life. You know, that it that the profile hints, but never quite explicates, involves lots of young women who are interested in the cult of the celebrity painter i guess part of the, i mean i it's in first of all i love a show where dana and i vehemently disagree on all three topics <laughs> so fun i think we might get like a bing 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 like we we collected the pokemon for a full disagreement <laughs> show um which i'm not sure we ever have before uh, it's a rare one and beautiful but it's it's interesting to hear you have such a negative response to it because i would have imagined that i had the same i think i may be grading on something of a curve because i think this the celebrity profile is just like a completely broken thing there aren't good ones anymore nobody i mean the art world is slightly different than the broader celebrity industrial complex but nobody who comes through the classic journalistic channels can get the kind of access that can actually present a revealing portrait of what a human is like. And for all that the philosophizing of the piece may seem like convenient journalistic dorm room hoo-ha, I actually, I don't know, maybe I was just reading it in like a zap frame of mind, but the question of like, what do we want from a profile? What are we trying to understand about a person? Like, what does it mean to read a satisfying profile of a famous person whose work we are familiar with? You know, whether that's Megan Fox or... Chuck Close, you know, and on any end of the celebrity kind of class and power spectrum. A, that's always been a little bit confusing. What is portraiture in that profile form? And B, what are the mechanics by which we get anything interesting anymore? I mean, and this is why we keep having these like laughable slavering profiles by old men who are like, what is Margot Robbie? That knockabout (laughs) beauty from that backwater, you know, like that sort of grotesque Vanity Fair piece about Margot Robbie from a couple weeks ago that was getting much excoriated on the internet. You know, so there's sort of that style where the access is like scant and over a salad. And then there's just like pontificating and hypothesizing by the writer, which depending on what kind of old let you assign uh, is more or less gross accordingly. And then then there's the kind of meta one, you know, which I think the Katie Weaver profile of Kim Kardashian in GQ recently was a great profile. I mean, that was probably the best profile I've read in the last year. But that's sort of about the armature of the celebrity apparatus and kind of being invited within it as a willing participant and explicating that in a very savvy way, which you can pull off with a celebrity like Kim Kardashian for whom that kind of celebrity mechanics is the actual thing that we're interested in about her. So seeing her deploy it very cannily does feel revealing in some way. But honestly, like the form is kind of dead. So hiring a writer with this kind of relationship to do this kind of thing feels to me like a 
worthy project, even if mm-hmm. it left you with a pile of queasiness. <laughs> Honestly, if I'd read it on a different afternoon, it might have left me with a similar pile of queasiness. But for whatever reason, right. I felt generous toward it. I, I think that honestly, for me, I wish that I could be so so lofty as to say that it was ethical journalistic questions that made me resist this profile. I honestly just didn't like the tone of it. I, I left it just feeling like, shut up, Willis Hilton. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. You're friends with Chuck Close and you think that everything he does is mysterious and you have art insight. I just felt like there was a lot of, of showing off of the writer's oh, yes. knowledge and insights and in inness. There is also the metaphor. He was like, when I was at an artist's colony earlier this month and I met a video artist, you know. <laughs> There's a moment that some other guy walks in the room as he's talking with Close. This guy is the director of Pace Gallery. I forget his name. And, uh, and the author goes out of your way to assure you of his fame and says, in walks XYZ, head of Pace Gallery, who is nearly right. as famous as Chuck Close himself. And right. that was just a moment that he really lost me. That, oh, somebody walked in, and, but I promise yes. he was famous. He mattered. <laughs> and that's that's great. That puts That's exactly it. That puts the finger on what I was trying to get at, but just couldn't quite do, which is that which is that you're both investing the artist who moves as far away from that as possible with a new saintly aura. At the same time, you're immediately reinscribing it in the world of like high-end art fetish by pointing out that Arnie, Arnie Glimpshire is famous. I mean, you're constantly... I mean, at least at least they didn't get in as far, I, I, that I remember. They didn't get into the prices, which which I mean, you can scarcely read um, a, a profile of a li- living American artist without getting into their price history. But nonetheless, it's this it's the self importance of leaving the world of self importance behind, uh, which is just the move <laughs> I, I really revile. Yeah, but even that's sort of revealing. I mean, maybe that's sort of making the profile or part of the story about the world that you're understanding him to be making a break with or something and a, a weird bit of jujitsu. But all I can say is I read the piece and came away feeling informed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel too. like you're... I, I yeah, totally agree with that. Julia's relation to this is basically identical. It's a reversal of our Ghostbusters conversation, right? Where both of us are sort of saying, oh, I acknowledge all the flaws. You know, I, I, I have no defense against, you know, the, the our various arguments and critiques being made against this. But somehow I still went with it. Somehow I still liked it. All right. Well, I think in one respect, this profile is a great success, which is that it's intriguing to read. And you do end it knowing a lot about Chuck Close's career, his art, and where he is now. It's called The Mysterious Metamorphosis of Chuck Close. It's by Will S. Hilton in the um, Times Magazine. Check it out and tell us what you thought of it at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Stephen, this week I'm going to do a you and uh, and do a double endorsement, but I'm making it really quick. The first one is a coda to the movie that we talked about last week and that I endorsed two weeks ago, Abbas Kiarostami's Close Up. I think I mentioned something in our conversation about wanting to get the Blu-ray because it had a making of documentary and I really wanted to know, you know, in the making of this movie, what was reenacted, what was fictional, what was scripted, what was not. And a listener, some very kind listener whose name I don't have in front of, in front of me right now, told me either on Twitter or Facebook that... Hulu has that exact interview, the interview that appears in that in that Blu-ray extra. So I'm not sure. There may be more stuff in the extra, but what I really wanted to hear was the interview with Abbas Kiarostami about the origin of the movie, how it was done, and sort of the different layers of reality. And that interview was very, very satisfying. So I recommend if people went so far as to watch that movie with us and hear us talk about it, go back on Hulu, if Hulu is where you found it. It's sort of confusingly listed because it basically also is 
called Abbas Kiarostami close up. It might have the word interview. But when you call up those search terms, you will find two things, the movie itself and this little 27 minute interview with Kiarostami about how it all came about. And it's fascinating. I won't give anything away, but I learned a Mm -hmm. lot about the making of the movie. That's very surprising. And some of it very funny as well. Um, So that was that was number one. And the second one, which is related to our Pokemon Go topic, is a is a kind of augmented reality app that was recommended by a friend and that I love and that I really am planning to use a lot in the future. It's really cool. I'm going to show it to Julia right now, Steve, because you're not in the studio to see it. But it's called Skyview. Have either of you heard of these? <gasps> I just used this. Yes. It's okay. so cool. Hold it up and describe how it works. Okay. So this is an app that does augmented reality for the stars and constellations. So whether it is nighttime or daytime, you can hold it up and it will show you sort of an overlay of the stars you are looking at and then draw the you know, absurd chicken scratch of our constellations and tell you where they sit in the sky that you're looking at. Right. And look down. Try looking down. This is a cool rea- sort of a not virtual reality, but actual reality moment where you can look you can look at any angle through this thing. Right. Because the stars aren't just above us. They're all around us. We are in them. <laughs> and so you sort of get this 360 degree sense of your astronomical place in the universe when you look through this sky guide thing. So the constellations will be outlined. You can click on different stars and planets to learn about them. It's I haven't started to, to tap into all the things that this can do yet, and I only got the free version. There's also a paid version that I think does even more. But I want to thank my friend Lance Gould, I don't know if he listens to the show, who turned me on to this because it's such a fun app, and it just seems so fun with your kid to go around and look up at the stars in the sky or down at the stars below you at every moment. That app sounds amazing, i got to say. That, Sky, yeah, that. Skyview. Skyview, yeah. check it out. That's intense. All right, Julia, what do you have? Well, I think that it's very clear when you watch the movie that the greatest thing about Ghostbusters past and Ghostbusters present is the original Ghostbusters song. There's just nothing better than that song. It's the greatest song ever. Uh, And the song put me in mind of one of the greatest videos ever to go viral on the internet, which I think I've actually endorsed before, but I could not resist endorsing again, which is the pumpkin head dance video, which is from the television station KXVO uh, and apparently originated when I think the weatherman for that station on Halloween dressed up in like a black bodysuit with a real jack-o'-lantern on his head and then just does a very robust and vigorous dance, not particularly ghost-busting related to the Ghostbusters theme. <laughs> it goes on for about a minute and a half. It's just glorious. And I convey it to you in honor of Ghostbusters past and present. It's true. The Ghostbusters theme is reason enough to remake the movie right there. So we all just get to hear it kick back in again. Although the version sung in this, it was Fall Out Boy, I think, who covered it. It was no Ray Parker Jr. The various remakes are bad. This, Thankfully, the pumpkin dance is to the original. We will put a uh, link to it on our show page. Hmm. All right. So for uh, a quick dual endorsement, um, first, it would have been Iris Murdoch's 97th birthday on July 15th. Uh, Great British, mid-century British novelist. Um, I find myself thinking about her and her work more and more. I love it, especially in the face of Brexit and Little England, um, both of which um, in abstract ways um, she thought about. Anyway, many great novels from Iris Murdoch. Uh, pick one and bring it with you to the beach. Um, uh, trust me, if you haven't discovered her yet, she she really is just one of the great English novelists of the 20th century. There you go. The second is, um, uh, I caught on YouTube. This is so kind of, you know, anachronistic classic rock, you know, bullshit maundering. But I found um, the Elvis Costello, you know, hosted that show, uh, music interview show. He had the police on. I, it, I, I mean, I do think he's a genius, and I do think they were a great band, 
And it just all comes together beautifully because um, what he does is he brings out, they were a trio, obviously, he brings out each musician one at a time. And the thing that people don't understand about Andy Summers, the guitarist, was older than the other members of the police who were already not all that young. I mean, they were close to 30 when they broke as a rock band, which in rock and roll years is is old. And a- Andy Summers was significantly older than that. He'd been in Soft Machine, this amazing prog rock band, and had been playing jazz uh, in England since I believe the late 50s um, and was just harmonically a really, really interesting musician um, who doesn't get the credit he deserves. He interviews him about all of that. It's totally fascinating. He brings out Stuart Copeland, who's like, in my mind, just a kind of god on the drums, interviews him about how he grew up in the Middle East because his dad, it turns out, was in the intelligence services, which is why they were called the police. Um, and um, uh, and he especially learned to love this Lebanese, this really distinctive Lebanese uh, form of country music, kind of hill, you know, peasant music that has a powerful accent on the third beat, which is very not rock and roll. And so that that really distinctive drumming style that he has comes from these um, totally unexpected musical influences that then flowed into reggae, which is a much more expected one. But nobody drums the way he does and they get right to the heart of why, which is amazing. And then out comes the star Sting, who everyone loves and everyone hates. Um, and he just lives up to all of the love and the hate. He's just so he's so fucking talented. He's so good looking. He's so charismatic. And he's such a fucking pompous ass and all of the above. And it's a terrific interview. Um, but you realize Sting picks up a guitar and plays Roxanne, which he says was essentially a tango. And the chording structure of it is fascinating. The rhythmic structure is fascinating. And you just see that. You see beyond its status as a pop, overly familiar pop song. And then Elvis picks up a guitar and inspired by that plays Allison, but singing the harmony of it. And you realize these guys are fucking genius. I mean, these guys are so musically talented. It's un- unbelievable. I mean, I think that's well known about Elvis Costello, less well known about Sting because, you know, people think of him as this totemically idiotic, um, you know, um, star. But anyway, and then the band all comes out and they play a couple of songs all together with Elvis Costello. It's amazing. It's just great TV. If you give a shit at all about these kind of late era classic rock, um, wax figures and I do, it's amazing. So that's my endorsement. We'll link to it on the page. Julia, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Uh, Dana, thanks a lot. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Anna Hepperman. Our intern is Lizzie Fison. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply Networks. Culture Gap Fest, of course, is part of that Panoply Network. You should check out our entire roster of shows at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Something strange in your neighborhood. 